Let's go ahead and pray so uh, the Lord be with you. Uh, Father, uh, help us in all that we do to seek you and help us particularly to understand uh, how our beliefs about you and how our faith in you is, is justified and true and certain. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week I noticed, uh, well actually this week I noticed that last week I had forgot to put the subtitle, um, which if you read the introduction carefully you should have known I forgot to stress the idea of certainty in an uncertain age. And that's a reference to Luke's prologue to his gospel where he writes to one Theophilus, which is probably a real person, although somebody uh, once wrote in a commentary that it was a representative uh, name because it literally means lover of God. So you can actually insert your name in there, dear lover of God. And he talks about writing his gospel and then uh, right at the end of the first paragraph in, in a translation, he says, I've, I've investigated everything carefully, O Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things which you have been taught. And I think that's an emphasis that's been lost in our postmodern age. We do live in a postmodern age. It's also post-Christian. It's post a large number of things. That there is such a thing as objective truth, and you can be certain about it, as long as you don't misunderstand what certainty means. Certainty does not mean 100% absolute rational certainty because there's almost nothing that you can know with that kind of certainty. About the only thing you can know is your own existence. Like, remember Descartes, actually Augustine said it before him, I think, therefore I am. You cannot doubt your own existence. Just, just try it sometime. That's a philosophical joke. If you didn't get it, that's okay. And you, you can know the, the axioms of mathematics and logic, and, and that's about it. Uh, beyond our own existence, very little of what we care deeply about is known with absolute rational certainty. But that's just a limitation of human rationality. So it's not actually a problem. So let me skip forward to where we were last week. So Charles Taylor analyzes sociologically and spiritually to a certain extent what's going on around us. So he says within the imminent frame, that's what he calls the, the social structure that we live in and move in and have our being. He calls it the imminent frame. To contrast it with the early, you might say, transcendent frame, which extended from uh, Latin Christendom into what you might call... 20th century American civil Christendom. Uh, in the imminent frame, the conditions for religious belief and personal faith have altered so that naive or innocent belief has become impossible. Let, let's say it has become impossible for a large segment of the population, and I would include us in that. Um, and alternatives to traditional beliefs have proliferated. And if, if I went off on a side tangent, I'd mention some of those alternative beliefs, but you can go ahead and fill in the blanks mentally right there. 
within this new social reality, there is a suppression of truth. Uh, that's a phrase borrowed from Paul in English translation from Romans 1, where people in unrighteousness, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness because they want to be told the truth because, well, it makes them feel bad. To just to sum up, it manifests itself in the denial of objective truth, the willingness to ignore facts and evidence that go against one's desires or worldview, and the proliferation of false and even delusional beliefs and teaching. Uh, another aspect that Taylor doesn't exactly say it this way, but I will, that this culture, I think European and Western civilization, we're running on the fumes of the Judeo-Christian tradition. How long can you run on? Depends on whether you're going downhill or uphill. So I'm not going to make any predictions as to when civilization will collapse, but civilization always collapses. It could be 10 years, 100 years, whatever. Uh, I don't want to digress there either. But I do think that a, a lot of what we make about... You, you may have heard the phrase, being on the right side of history, which their, the history doesn't have a side. I view history like C.S. Lewis viewed it. Uh, to paraphrase him, he said, history is just the long, sad story of humanity trying to find something other than God that will make them happy. And of course, it's, that is doomed to failure. It's also the case, um, uh, some of you last week said, after I finished that uh, cultural context, that, that you found it depressing. Yeah, it can be depressing. But in another sense, if, if you take, if there were history, like right after Adam and Eve, if we had recorded history and there were historians writing, every one of them could say, we live in troubled times. Because that has been true since the fall, because Genesis chapter 2 did not end, and they lived happily ever after. So we always live in troubled times, and, and I think what's useful is to just understand what kind of troubles we have. Um, the other thing I wanted to add about that is uh, to talk about the, the survival of the church. That simply is not in doubt. So if you, if you take the church like a sea voyage, we're no longer on a Caribbean cruise. You know, we're going to be storm-tossed. You might have to stop lounging around the beach and, you know, go help out bailing or something like that. Uh, but to mix my metaphors, definitely, Jesus did say that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church is not in danger. Now, an individual expression of it might be. But God is in charge of history, so I don't want people to be depressed. Um, there is a sense, I'm persuaded, several senses in which our situation today is more like than it was, like the situation, the cultural context in the Roman Empire when the gospel was first being preached. There is a certain level of hostility. There is indifference. And we cannot count on the culture to support our belief system, our worldview. But that just means we've got to spend perhaps more time doing what Paul said to do. And I'm just going to list these things that, that can be drawn out of Scripture from primarily Peter and Paul, but also Jude. 
So preach here and discuss regularly the gospel and the word of God. I, it's, yes, I know we're doing that, and Paul says to do that. Use our abilities and gifts to build up and unify the body of Christ. Don't be conformed to the spirit of this age, but be transformed by renewing our thinking and understanding. I'll pause there briefly because we all have to deal with the culture we're in. And on a spectrum, uh, you deal with it in a number of ways. There is on, on the far, one far side, complete assimilation. Um, I don't want to be judgmental or critical, but let's just say that's, that's the perspective of what might be called so-called progressive Christianity. But then on the other uh, end of the spectrum, there's complete rejection. Again, and I'm not just trying to be pejorative or critical, but hyper-fundamentalists and, and the Amish, and, and I have a lot of respect for the Amish, and, and old order Mennonites. We saw some at the zoo uh, yesterday. Um, they have rejected the culture, not not just in, well, I don't go to R-rated movies, but that they, they dress differently. Uh, the Amish, I don't know about Old Order Mennonites, don't use electricity except when they're required to by federal law and keeping their dairy products fresh uh, and meats. And, and I don't think either one of those ways is actually going to work. Uh, you, 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 if you're assimilated, you're just conforming to it. And, and I don't think complete rejection. We all have to live in this culture. And there, there are a lot of, Paul gives a lot of good advice on how to do this, on how not to conform with the culture. And Paul was a very cultured man, by the way. Uh, in this uh, formations class, we're going to emphasize the last two. Know what we believe and why we believe it. And then be prepared to give answers to those who question us about our faith and the faith. When we say our faith, we're talking about, I don't know, a human state of being, or you could say, I wouldn't say just as just a mental process, but an inward process why, whereby we trust in Christ. And the faith is the body of content that goes along with it, from the proclamation of the gospel to the content of the Bible to our understanding of reality. That's the faith. So any questions? So far about that, yes. Okay, well, uh, so the, the remark has been made that C.S. Lewis emphasized that uh, men and women can ignore key absolutes about reality. And of course, this is a biblical idea. Um, I believe in absolute truth, but I prefer the term objective truth. Because this, which is not out of line with what C.S. Lewis said, the rejection of objective truth, uh, it shows up in the slogan, uh, well, that's your truth, or that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And if you haven't heard that, well, you, you will. And this is the idea that reality, and it really is somewhat delusional, that reality can be whatever you want it to be. And there are reasons why this is so that I won't go into right now, but yeah, it is the case that people want to reject objective truth unless you're on the wrong side of history and then they want you to agree with them. So uh, everybody, uh, lots of people are moral relativists until you want to punch them in the nose and then it's wrong for you to punch them in the nose. Um, 
that all that that was an ethical joke, but <laughs> in your in your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That's an apologia. That's where the word apologetics comes from. To anyone, oh, there's a typo there, who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter is, is th- this is like the center of a section where he's giving advice to Christians. How are you going to deal with your pagan neighbors? And as long as we understand that our neighbors aren't actually going to be worshiping idols or burning pinches of incense to Caesar, we do live in what could be called a neo-pagan culture right now. And, and Paul writes in Colossians, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best uh, use of the time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I'm sure Paul did not mean what we might mean when we talk about someone had salty language. Uh, so he, uh, salt was a preservative and a flavoring, uh, often the only preservative and the only flavoring that anybody had. And, and so your speech is supposed to be uh, gracious, uh, words of wisdom, uh, if, if you should be as uh, intelligent in your marks about uh, your faith as you possibly can be uh, and know how to answer each person, Paul says. So apologetics is the reasoned defense of Christian faith and the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is one means, not the only means, but one means by which God engenders or creates and sustains our faith in Jesus Christ. There, there are people, famous cases, C.S. Lewis being one of them, people who came to faith by being presented with evidence and arguments that persuaded them. Uh, one example in Scripture is Paul talking to the philosophers in Athens. So he goes to the Areopagus, which means Mars Hill, which was like the combination Starbucks Mall. It's where everybody hung out, sold stuff, talked about philosophical ideas, the marketplace. And he's talking with the philosophers there. And there's a lot more going on here, but I'll just sum up. So he, he knows his philosophy. There are two quotes there. There's one from a Greek that Paul mentions. There's one from a Greek poet, one from a Greek philosopher. The phrase, uh, God is he who we live, we live in, move in, and have our being. That is a Greek philosopher whose name escapes me right now. And, 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 it's, and he, so he's talking to them, but he still comes up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were a good Greco-Roman philosopher, even intelligent person, you thought the idea of a re- resurrection from the dead was outright silly, if not insane. And so a lot of them scoffed at that point and left. But, but then it says, but some believed. It's would uh, be a great epitaph for any evangelist, but some believe. So even philosophers could be persuaded by good reasons that God is real, that the message of the gospel is true, and that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Um, this is the Nicene Creed. As a matter of fact, let's, if you still have your bulletin, and maybe you can read that. That's as big as I could get it and get it on one page. Uh, I don't want to go ahead and read this right now because my time is limited, but we, we know this. 
a lot of times we know it by heart. Uh, we believe in one God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead and buried, rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and in the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Apostolic Church. And the question I had is, is uh, why should anyone, we, we declare and re- recite this, every Sunday, and I think that's a good thing to do. It's one of the reasons I'm an Anglican, but I won't go into an apologetics for Anglicanism just yet. Why should anybody declare or recite this? Um, this is your opportunity to raise your hand. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, actually, this is one of those questions that the teacher asked that seems like a discussion question, but you're actually supposed to read my mind and get the correct answer. So... Let's, let's look at um, some possible answers to this. Uh, my, my favorite, I would call them agnostics. Uh, anybody know Camille Paglia? She is a lesbian, feminist, cultural anal- analyst who won't put up with political correctness. Very interesting lady. You should read her stuff. Jordan Peterson. Has anybody heard of Jordan Peterson? A Jungian psychologist. I won't hold that against him too much. Uh, both of these, uh, you could say, they're probably somewhat agnostic, both respect to God and certainly to Christianity. But they say that Christianity is necessary as a bulwark and a foundation for Western civilization. This was what it was built on, and it is still necessary. So there's one reason why we might want to declare this. Um, Why should anyone believe it? Why should anyone believe that is a the Nicene Creed is a distillation of the Christian faith based on scripture. Why should anyone believe it? What what does anybody think? Very it should good. Be something because we because it's true. Okay, thank you. See, he read my mind. I, I told you it was a trick question. <laughs> Because it's true. Now, uh, if you do have your bulletin, go ahead and look at it. Because I I want to highlight some stuff. So, um, of course, there's the reading from Scripture. So we want to affirm that's true. But then there's the Gloria. So we we call God Lord God, Heavenly King, Almighty God and Father. We worship you. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God. This is an affirmation of things that represent reality. Even in the hymn, my Savior left his throne above. Now, this accounting for the figurative language and the metaphors in here. uh, I like this hymn because not only is it evocative, which is one of the purposes of hymn, it, it is and as well as psalms and other things. They're meant to evoke in us praise and worship. But it's also uh, expressing things that I think are truth claims. My Savior left his throne above. Did he do that? Well, yes, he did. Again, that's, I, I, I do not believe, I do believe all the Bible is true. I, I do not believe Jesus Christ literally sits down on the throne. Now, I could be wrong about that. But I think that's a metaphor. I can with all assurance say my God is near and loves me still. 
because he died once for all and bore the curse of death and hell. This is, a, this is a hymn that is meant to evoke praise and worship, but it's also making several affirmations of truth which can be traced back to Scripture. So why should anybody believe that? So the purpose of this class is to show and tell why and how the Christian faith is true and reasonable. That phrase comes from the uh, NIV, the New International Version translation. From an episode in Paul's life where he has been arrested, he is brought before King Herod Agrippa, the last Herod, I believe, and the Roman governor Festus, and he is making his defense, and to make a long story short, and he gets to the point where he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Festus is living, listening attentively up to that point, and, but then he said, wait a minute, Paul, you're, you're crazy. Because again, like a good educated Roman or Greek, he thinks a resurrection from the dead is impossible and in fact insane. Paul stops and says, well, no, I'm, I'm not insane because what I'm telling you is true and reasonable. I think the ESV, the English Standard Version, says true and rational. And then he goes on to say, and, and I'm sure that the King Agrippa and Ephesus, you, you know about these things because they were not done in a corner. The resurrection is not just hypothetically, but in actuality, up for historical investigation, just like any other event that happened in human history in time and space. And Paul is affirming that. And he says, this happened to me. I was there. I have the testimony of others. I have evidence and arguments that this is true and reasonable. The purpose of showing that the Christian faith is true and reasonable is to encourage and strengthen our faith and our discipleship. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the relationship between faith and reason. So what is faith? Well, this is Mark Twain, and you might like his books, but he was he had no use for organized religion and particularly for organized Christianity. So he he did mock and make fun of in his writings uh, preachers, pastors, and organized religion. He wrote this in Following the Equator, which is basically a lengthy travelogue. Those who scoff at the schoolboy calling him frivolous and shallow, yet was a schoolboy who said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And then here's a more recent one. Uh, you may have heard of Richard Dawkins, world's most famous atheist, I think, at this point. Faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Um, however, uh, Richard Dawkins himself admits, sort of, that faith is necessary. So I want to show this short video clip of him. Do scientists ever need faith? He was asked in an interview. Not in the sense of faith as meaning belief in something for which there is no evidence. Uh, there is a sense, there are various senses of faith in which we do, uh, we, scientists do participate. Um, those branches of science which I don't understand, for example, physics, I, it could be said, I suppose, that I have faith that physicists understand it better than I do. 
And so when I say something that physicists tell me, such as that, uh, that, that there was nothing before the Big Bang, they're not allowed to talk about, about the word before in the context of the Big Bang, I sort of have faith that physicists uh, understand enough to be allowed to say that, even though I don't understand why they're allowed to say that. But it's not faith, it's not blind faith, it's not faith in the absence of evidence. It's faith that's based upon uh, confidence in the scientific method, in the scientific peer review process, the fact that I know that um, there are other physicists who can test, verify, criticize the views of any one physicist. So it's not the same as, as religious faith, which is, which is based upon no evidence at all. No evidence at all. So he can have faith, but you can't. Well, you can, but you're misguided. Um, now, I, I don't think Professor Dawkins understands the irony of what he's saying uh, in a most complete way. Not only he is saying, well, I have evidence for my faith, but you don't. Elsewhere in his writings, he just blanket condemns faith and said you should just you know, believe stuff based on evidence. Now he's saying you should believe it based on authority. The thing is, he doesn't even understand, I, I don't know, maybe he does, but he certainly doesn't express it here, that the, there is faith in science beyond having faith in an authority. We all have faith in certain authorities, and I'll explain that. But science, like everything else in human endeavor, can't exist without faith. The existence, here's what you need faith in, the existence of an external world independent of human observation and ideation, orderly nature of the external world, the regularity of the laws of nature, none of these things actually can be proven scientifically. You have to assume they're true or have faith that they're true before you even start science. So faith, Professor Dawkins is correct in that sense even though he's an atheist, that faith in his most general sense is confidence and trust directed towards someone or something. Everyone has faith in this way, directed towards specific persons, institutions, or ideas. Human life, particularly our relationships, is not possible without faith. Without faith, there wouldn't be any friends. If you can't trust anybody, you won't have friends, lovers, families, governments, civilization. There's that marvelous phrase from the philosopher Thomas Hobbes who was talking about humanity and the state of nature as being the war of all against all. And you can see when that happens, when trust in a society and a culture break down, as I think to some extent it is doing in this culture. You get more hostility and more violence. Faith is based on knowledge. You can't have faith in some, you literally can't have faith. Whatever you might think, you can have faith in something you know nothing about. So faith is based on knowledge, real or imagined, full or complete, of the object of your faith. Professor Dawkins has faith in the scientific method and in certain scientists. Well, so do I, up to a point. Um, there are scientists I read and trust, uh, to be honest, and philosophers, too, uh, to to express what they sincerely believe to be the truth. 
It is possible for faith to be misplaced or held for no good reasons, even against good reasons, to have faith in someone or something. And so I would argue, and I will argue, in effect, that uh, Professor Dawkins has no faith based on no good reasons. He has faith that there is no God, if, if that makes sense. But yet I think there are really good reasons to believe that God exists and that the Christian faith is true. He says there isn't, but I believe he is simply in denial about this. Going back to George's question, there are objective truths, and in fact, uh, we can deny them. Saving faith in the specifically Christian sense is trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We believe that what Christ has done is completely sufficient for us. Uh, and that we can trust in his, whatever he says, and in his promises. This is, this is not something strange, weird, odd, or mystical. There are good reasons to believe this man, Jesus Christ. And in fact, there are good reasons to believe that what the Nicene Creed says about him, what the, the definition of Chalcedon, this is a Christological statement which for the most part, explains what that phrase truly God and truly man really means. I think there are good reasons to believe that, that these things are true about who Jesus Christ is and what he did. Faith in Jesus Christ is not misplaced nor held contrary to reason, knowledge, or evidence. We have good reasons to trust the promises of God in Christ. And we'll look at some of these as the course goes on. Any questions about that? about what faith is. Okay, um, so Robbie said, uh, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. I think it's true too that, that, and Jesus said, no one comes to me except the Father draw him, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is necessary. Uh, does anybody know Christopher Hitchens? He died a while ago, probably the world's second most famous atheist at this point. Uh, actually said in an interview, very interesting interview, that he, he believed he was one of those 10% of the people who just Pascal described as incapable of belief. There's actually a story about him that maybe even he wasn't capable of, of belief. He had a friend who was a pastor in his last years, and that's a very interesting story. He did not have a known public conversion experience, I'm not saying that, but... Um, it is true that if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, then people are not drawn to him. But again, God and the Holy Spirit use means. If all it took uh, was an, an inner sense from the Holy Spirit for someone to believe, then that next preaching would simply not be necessary. The Bible would not be necessary. Um, again, I, the Holy Spirit uses means, and sometimes these means are quite human. But it is true that if God doesn't draw us to him, then we are by nature in our sins and we're not able to come to God. So there is truth in that. But again, uh, I think apologetics is one means, not the only means, one means by which God engenders faith through the Holy Spirit. All right, uh, well, this, this would be a good place to point to wrapping it up Next week. Reason is our God-given fact. There's nothing mystical about reason either. 
uh, our God-given mental faculty that enables us to acquire and evaluate information, discover knowledge, distinguish truth from error and reality from illusion, uh, form beliefs, and choose between alternative courses of action. And I express this simply on the basis of what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't give a definition of reason, but if you draw from many examples, and they are in the book, this is reasoning in action. Uh, do I give an example? In the uh, Bible does not oppose faith to reason or see them as antagonistic. The Bible encourages us to use our minds and reasons. So Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love and worship of God involves all who we are, including our reason and intellectual skills. Well, I'll pause there because I'm not really finished this section, but I just want to point to what we're going to conclude with next week. At some point, again, I want to affirm what Robbie says, you, you do not... You don't have to, to, to be uh, a studied individual. You do not have to have a PhD or uh, even a college degree in anything in order to know that Christianity is true. Uh, one of, I think one of the world's greatest Christian philosophers, William Lane Craig, says that the testimony of the Holy Spirit to, to an individual is sufficient for them to actually have knowledge that Christian faith is true. So why do we need apologetics? That's a good question, and I'll come back to that next week. Uh, does anybody have any questions to wrap up with? Okay, so George said there, there can be opposition to the Word of God, and I, I, I think you're saying specifically in an individual's heart, and that's the case. Um, but one of the most famous cases of God using, uh, I think God using, uh, a persistence of evidence and arguments is Anthony Flew's conversion to at least deism. Uh, again, there was no public conversion to Christianity. Anthony Flew was, again, a very famous atheist philosopher. Uh, I had his dictionary of philosophy before that he decided to change his mind and say, well, yeah, I was wrong, but there is a God. Uh, that was attributed by many in the atheist community as just, you know, the ramblings of an old man, because he was in his late 70s when this happened. Uh, yeah, Anthony Flew. And he, he said he became convinced, particularly by uh, the argument from design, which we'll talk about, that, yeah, the evidence really is that there is a God. So again, I'll, I'll wrap up by saying, uh, no one comes to God unless the Holy Spirit draws him, but one of the ways the Holy Spirit draws people is through the evidence and arguments presented to their minds. This is again what Paul did at Athens. He presented evidence and arguments, and some of the philosophers rejected him, and, but some of them believed and followed Paul. Anyway, thank you very much, and we'll pick up where we left off next week.